morning. How are you doing today? You doing well? Hey, can we thank the worship team? What a great job today. It's kind of our uh, new thing at Trinity Church. You don't need to drink caffeine. Just show up and they'll wake you up. Great job. I love it. Well, we're excited you're here today. Week two in a brand new series called Rooted and Reaching. If you got a Trinity this week media piece on your way in, you had this in there. If you want to get that out and kind of have that ready to go, this is our notes to help us kind of throughout the message. If you'll also notice, these are prompts for your discussion this week in your home groups. A lot of your home groups have begun to start back over the last week or two. Ours did this last uh, week and a great time just kind of getting reunited. And even as we're thinking about now, uh, kind of our group, even in relation to the greater group of Trinity Church moving forward in this rooted and reaching idea. So we're so glad you're here today. We are going to be in the Bible today, and uh, we're in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6. 2 Kings is in the former covenant, the Old Testament, and great help for you today. If you don't know where that's at, it comes right after 1 Kings. You're welcome, okay? You're welcome. 2 Kings, find your way there. Chapter 6, we'll uh, dive in in just a second, and we'll get going. Welcome to fall. Uh, I'll probably find out next week it'll be 100, and I was wrong. But so great today to have a little bit of cloud and kind of get started, and uh, we're really glad uh, that you're joining us with this this part of your weekend. I want to say this from the very beginning, uh, as I think about parents in the room. So parents, if you have kids that are here with you, I want to shoot this over the bow because I want to help you and your parenting. Today's message, if, if you ever sometimes um, look at a website, there's websites like things like Plugged In from Focus on the Family that gives you an overview of a movie before you might go see it. I'm going to give you an overview of today. Today's message is rated PG-13. And I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But it is, and, and even in Plugged In, they'll tell you why it's rated such a thing. And it's rated today, our message, because it's got some pretty horrific violence. It's right out of the Bible, but I want to give you a heads up on that because I want to help you do your job. And if that's a conversation you don't want to have today, I'm helping you right now so you don't have to, okay? For the rest of us, I've got your attention. Perfect. It's going to be good, all right? So let's dive in. We're going to take a look today. We are moving forward in this series, and what we did is we kind of laid out things last week. We began talking about the importance of majoring on the majors, talking about the importance of when we can pull out to 30,000 feet and look at the Bible, there is a plot line that runs through it. And in the plot line of the Bible, the idea that God is redeeming his creation, he is making right that which is wrong, wrong due to sin, it's broken, and in that brokenness, God is bringing healing and peace and forgiveness. That's the plot line of the Bible, and what we said last week is it's important to know the plot, that's huge, it's important to respond to the plot, but it's also important to let that plot change your perspective and your priorities on a daily basis to be something that shapes the way you make decisions. And so what we're doing today is we're moving now down the field. That's the first idea. The second idea is this. What do you do when you look at the plot of the Bible and then you put it into the context of your everyday life? Because you live among a people, a relational world, of many people who have not responded to this plot, who don't believe that it's true, who might not even know it. Or who have heard it and rejected it. All kinds of different responses in your relational world. How do you take the plot line of the Bible, God redeeming his creation, and now engage it in your everyday life? And this next step today is kind of moving in that direction. What do we do with that reality? 
I want you to know this, and we'll say it every week in this series. God has you on the planet for a purpose. He wants you to live a rooted and reaching life, rooted in Jesus, reaching your world. And as you engage both of those dynamics on a daily basis, you will begin to understand why you're here. There are some of us in this place today that already get it, that have been living this way maybe for years or decades. Others of us who are just awakening to it and even others who will be resistant. I get it. But that's my job is to show you over the next few weeks This is what I believe God has called all of us, every believer on the planet, to live a rooted in Jesus, reaching our world kind of life. So as we dive in today, every week we talk about a now what statement, meaning it's not just the big idea, but I'm supposed to do something with this. It's in your notes. It's on the screen. Once you have responded to God's invitation of rescue, that good news shouldn't stop with you. Let's dive in. Number one in your notes today, despair happens in your world. Despair happens in your world. And by the, when I'm saying your world, I'm actually talking about your relational world, the people you do life with. Despair happens in every facet of those lives. Here's what I mean. Second Kings chapter 6 is where we pick it up today, beginning in verse 24. It reads this way. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. So let's even just start real quick. Samaria is a walled city. I'll show you it on a map in a second. But as this walled city, to lay siege means the idea that we bring an army and nothing is going to go into the city and nothing is coming out. That might be fine for a few days or a week, but when you start doing that week over week, month over month, what we begin to read next is what happens. There was a great famine in the city, verse 25. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? He's kind of being sarcastic is the way he's biting back. Like, lady, I got nothing for you. But then he asked her kind of on the side, well, what's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today. And tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so that we may eat him, but she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes, and as he went along the wall, the people looked and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. I just read those words. They're in your Bible. They've been there all along. What I want to do today is I want to unpack something far beyond we read something gross at church today. We read something horrific at church today. But I want to get to what is going on in the middle of that despair and something that by reading those words you could have never guessed. More importantly, something the people living in the city of Samaria could have never guessed was waiting just on the other side of that wall. Let's set some context today so we can see what we're talking about. First, I told you I'd show you a map. Take a look at this map, and there's a couple very significant things circled on the map, and the far up right corner is the city Damascus. Now, you'll notice that whole kingdom up there, the kingdom of Aram, and that kingdom up to the north and the east of Israel. Israel's the blue country down now to the lower part and to the left, and you'll notice the city of Samaria is a city that's circled. Here's why this is so important, even contextually at Trinity Church. It was just this summer. Just this summer, I think it was in the month of August, or maybe it was July, I'm sorry, that we were teaching through a series called Faith Steps. 
And I got to teach on the story of Naaman. Now, if you remember Naaman, Naaman came from Damascus. His king, the king of Aram, had sent his general, his prized military leader, to Israel to say, heal my guy. Naaman had leprosy. Now, when you're reading where we're reading today, you see the audacity of that statement. What was happening, and by the way, this story that I'm talking about, Naaman, happens in 2 Kings 5. You're in 2 Kings 6. It's the very next chapter. And so it was at that time in 2 Kings 5, the Arameans were sending raiding parties into Israel. We realized they even stole a girl and made her uh, Naaman's wife's slave. So that's the relationship, sending raiding parties in to do damage. Now the king of Aram has raised the stakes. Ben-Hadad is the king. And Ben-Hadad is saying, I'm all in. We're going to cut off the head of the snake. We're going to surround the city of Samaria, the capital city of the nation of Israel. And when Samaria falls, the rest of the kingdom will fall. And he's going for it. He's not just sending little bands of raiders in. Now he's saying, we're going to do it. We're going to take care of them. We're going to blot them from the face of the planet. That's the military tactic that's happening in 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, another key person in the story, it says the king of Israel, he's not named, but his name is Joram. Joram is this particular king in this narrative. And the powerful thing about Joram is this, is that he is the second son of a couple that you might have heard before named Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel, I said last service single-handedly, but I guess you'd say double-handedly because they were a married couple. They double-handedly brought in the worst idol worship ever in the nation of Israel. Where Israel completely forgot about Yahweh, their one true God, and they now began to elicit this worship of other pagan nations, so much so that Jezebel had 450 priests of Baal that worked for her, that lived in the city of Samaria completely shipwrecked in terms of their faith. Ahab and Jezebel were the ones who brought that in. This is their second son. This is Joram. And Joram is the king of Israel at this point, now a generation later, and their city is being besieged. Here's what I want you to hear from the very beginning today. If you don't catch this part, then a huge part of the story is gonna be lost. God does this. God says, there is a certain way that I want you to live. And when you live according to this path, you'll be blessed. When you live according to a different path, you're going to face destruction. Now, that might come across in a very dictatorial type of way. Like, who is God to say this? That's exactly the point. He is God. He is God, and he gets to tell us how to live, not only because of that position, but also out of his love, because what God directs us to do, he does so for our own well-being. Numerous times in the Bible, it refers to God as father. And every parent in the room knows that when you give direction to your children and when you have subsequent negative consequences for when they fail, you do so out of love for them. You do so for their best interest, not to injure, not to harm, but for their good. That is the heart of God. Because I want you to see a very important thing, even though this story is so terrible. I can't even begin to imagine inserting myself into that narrative and trying to figure out what on earth would I be thinking? How on earth would I be acting at this point? That kind of despair, I can't begin to relate to. But watch this. Watch what God had already done. 
I'm going to rewind you back, Moses. Moses has led a group of former slaves out of Egypt. He led them right up to the edge of the promised land, and they said, God, we don't believe you're actually going to do what you've called us here to do. We reject this promise, and we're going to do something different. Wander, I guess would be the best answer. Moses said, well, God has rejected you as a result of your lack of faith. Every single one of those adults died in the desert, never to have what God promised. But it would be their children. It would be their children, my favorite generation in the Bible, because they did believe God for what God said. And Moses is talking one of the last things he's going to tell this generation He's on the east side of the Jordan. They have not yet gone into the promised land. And as Moses is talking to this generation, this is what he tells them. Earlier, he reminds them, your parents failed because they didn't have faith that God was who he says he is. Don't make that same mistake. And when you go into this land, he's going to give you houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant. Remember him. Remember him and live according to his ways and you'll be blessed. Live apart from his ways and you'll be cursed. Deuteronomy chapter 28, you don't have to turn there, but you can look on the screen. This is part of that discussion Moses is having. And this is the part about if you walk away from God, what you'll receive. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, like maybe up to the northeast. From the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young, they will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave no, you no grain, no wine or olive oil, nor any of calves of your herds or lambs from your flocks until you are ruined." Watch this. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will, lay, they will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. Look at verse 53. Because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. 550 years before God said, this will happen if you walk away from me. We move from the horrific to the prophetic. And here's what you need to hear, even within that sequence. It wasn't as though God just exclaimed it. Look at the patience. Because it wasn't this generation now living in Samaria under the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel that had been so wicked. It had been previous generations. Even the whole nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, was based on a premise of we're moving away from God's design in Jerusalem to establish our own false version of Yahweh worship, which ultimately became no Yahweh worship at all. God had been patient generation over generation over generation. And now finally said, what I told you in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 28, that is now going to befall you. That's the context. That's where we're at, where we pick up the story today. No one in your relational world is that bad off. Or are they? You know, as bad as it would be living in a besieged city, the Bible describes an eternity apart from God. A real environment, the Bible describes specifically as hell, as something infinitely worse. Many of the people in your world are living in a kind of degree of hell, even right now, based on their separation from God out of their own sinful deeds and their self-destructive ways. In a word, they are marked by despair. 
That's a tough way to start today, but it's where we start because I don't really believe the great news is great till you know the bad news. And that leads us to number two in your notes today. Despair was a part of your life before you were rescued by Jesus. Despair was a part of your life before you were rescued by Jesus. Picking it up, 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate, the city of Samaria. They said to each other, why wait here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, what? Then we die. Okay, they're very logical people. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. Watch this. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army so that they said to one another. So this isn't really happening, but they're all hearing it. Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and they ate and drank. Then they they took silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and took some of the things and hid them also. Okay, now let's, let's back this up. This is bad on top of bad. People inside the city being laid siege to, there's such a degree of famine that it's horrific. These guys don't even get to be in the city. Okay, they have this disease that the Bible always tends to translate Old and New Testament of leprosy. It could have actually referred to multiple types of skin diseases, but the kind of disease that would keep you quarantined. God had actually said in the, in the law that when you have people with this type of disease, they need to be out of the camp, lest all of the people be infected. It was communicable. So as a result, these four men, we don't know their names. You're never going to know their name today. All you're going to know them by is the fact that they have a disease that keeps them away from everybody else. This is a bad situation. They don't even qualify to be in the city and die with dignity with everyone there. They're going to die outside the walls. And so they begin to do the, the death math. That's what I call it, death math. Here's, here's scenario number one. Uh, we go into the city, somehow sneak in. They're all dying in there. We're going to die. We stay outside here with no food, no water, we're going to die. We go over and offer ourselves to the Arameans. On the one hand, they might spare us. They might take us as uh, prisoners or they'll kill us and we die. Okay, there's no really good sequence of options for them. There's really no way to feel good about what's going to come from this reality. That's the point of despair that they're in. I wanted to say a quick thing, by the way, when we were in our series this summer um, on Naaman. Remember, that was an interesting link to this story today. Naaman also had this same disease. Leprosy is commonly referred today as Hansen's disease. And um, he had this same problem, and that's why he needed healing from Elisha. There was no cure, so they needed some supernatural help. Well, these four men have the same problem. And I remember as I was speaking, I learned a really important lesson in that message later on, and that would be get theological truth from a commentary, but get medical truth from a medical dictionary. Um, Because as I was talking about the problems with leprosy, the commentary I was reading and that I quoted was all wrong. And the fact that I preach in front of a group of many doctors at Trinity Church, (laughs) I was gently corrected later on that week, which by the way, was very gentle and kind. But the point is this, They had a a problem, a communicable disease that was not going to change, and that was what they were resorted to. As bad as despair was in the city, they weren't even included in that. These four were on their own. 
Now, the, the key part of this whole narrative of, of how this reality works is it, it comes down to this idea of what God did. It'd be real easy just to walk over this and see it perchance somehow. God caused every single one of these soldiers in the Aramean camp to believe that they were being marauded, that there was nations that were coming upon them that they had no idea and they were going to be ransacked, so they just ran for their lives. Isn't it interesting when we come into scenarios in our lives that we believe to be hopeless, and they are, apart from the power of what God can do? And it's a, this story is a great reminder for a group of people who had literally no hope. They were waiting on time to die. God did something they never saw coming. God did something only God can do. And how important that is in each and every one of our stories as we're walking towards a, a scenario, walking towards a problem, to realize, God, the one thing I haven't done is relied upon the fact that you can do what only you can do. So God causes all these soldiers and their generals to just literally run in haste. They dropped everything they had and just ran as fast as they could back home. And it's that scenario. It's that scenario that is the the four lepers are going to go surrender themselves. They walk into this camp completely stopped. Not a thing is missing. Food, wine, all the different treasures that they brought. And everything is full in there. And they walk into it. You must have known initially they're looking around like this is a trap. They're going to come get us. And, and as they kind of went into this tent, like, oh, my gosh, look at all this great food. Ooh, you know, where are the cameras? You know, am I being punked? You know, that kind of a thing. They were wondering about all this stuff and until finally they began to gorge and just realize no one's here and no one cares. It's all for us. It'd be like this. It'd be like modern day. You and three friends haven't eaten for days. Your clothes are in rags and you somehow find yourself upon Victoria Gardens over in Rancho. And as you walk around Victoria Gardens, there's nobody there. Every shop door is open, but not a single employee is there. And let me just tell you, Cheesecake Factory, here I come. (laughs) And I wouldn't leave for days. That's what they stumble upon. That's this scenario. They come upon this incredible amount of wealth, incredible amount of food and provision And they just go crazy. Here's my question to you. Was it a little like that for you? Was it a little bit like that for you when you came in contact with this great news of what Jesus had done for you? You see, it began for most all of us out of a place of some kind of despair. I've told you before, the prayer I pray for people that I'm connected to that have not yet put their faith in Jesus, it's a scary prayer, but it's a prayer that seems to always have to happen in every one of our lives I pray, God, bring him, bring her to the end of themselves. Bring them to a point where they realize I cannot rely on me. I never could. I've been faking it this whole time. I recognize I need what only God can do. And it's in that point of admission. See, every time we close our service with these ABCs, it begins with that reality, admitting that you need a Savior. Admitting that you are in a point of despair, a point of hopelessness. I cannot fix this by myself. But it's not just that. It's not just a sense of, God, I so badly need something. It's the God who shows up that you get to know. The God who loves you with a love you've never experienced before. The God who can forgive the mess of your life up until that point. And the God who will keep forgiving you moving forward. 
A God who you realize there is hope, where you thought life was hopeless, that's the God you come in contact with. And there is an immediate sense of joy, better than a roast beef. Better than all the food and drink that an incredibly hungry person could enjoy was your joy when you realized that there is a a repair, there is a fix, there is a God who has reached down to me and made this known. It changed everything, and rightly so. Because you met a Savior who can forgive your sins. You met a Savior who can wash out your stains. You met a Savior who can take away your shame. You met a Savior who comes and gives you a new name. You met a Savior who can make you whole. You met a Savior who came to give you life to the full. That's who Jesus is, and you were overjoyed. In your notes and on the screen, J.I. Packer put it this way, the gospel centers on justification, The truly dramatic transition from the status of a condemned criminal awaiting a terrible sentence to that of an heir awaiting a fabulous inheritance. That is the good news. And if you're here today and you've never heard it before, I'm so pleased, so excited to get to share it with you today. That's what the Bible is pointing you towards, is a new life a new understanding of why you're here, a new God that you didn't know his name, you didn't know about him, but now you can because he's made himself known to us. Though you were in despair, you were rescued and that has made all the difference. That brings us to number three today in your notes. Telling your world about Jesus' salvation is your responsibility. Telling your world about Jesus' salvation is your responsibility. Now we kind of turned a corner there, didn't we? So all of a sudden we were talking about, okay, despair is all around me. I looked at my own life and I saw I was in despair until I knew this Jesus. But now you're saying that there's something I need to do with this. Well, it's not so much what I'm saying. Let's keep reading. Second Kings chapter 7 and now verse 9. Then they, the four lepers, they said to each other, watch this. What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Verse 10, so they went and called to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone. Only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. And the gatekeeper shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. Now, I want to tell you about this part of the narrative that to me is so impressive, so powerful. Look very clearly at the motivation presented in why the lepers communicate this truth. What did they say? It is not right. There was a moral obligation. Then they also said, secondly, we are going to be punished. Remember, this is happening at dusk. This is happening as it's becoming dark. The people in the city gates looking forward, they can't see squat this time of day. But in the morning, in the morning, they're going to wake up and they're going to notice there's nobody in that camp. If we keep this quiet, we have about 12 hours. If we keep this quiet, they're going to come get us. Let's process that just for a second. What was the incredibly noble motivation for these four lepers to tell the people that were in famine in the city? A, we're more morally obliged. Just, you have to do it. Two, if we don't, we're going to be punished. 
they don't seem that noble all of a sudden, do they? Because the noble motivation would have been, oh, look at all this and all of our brothers and sisters in the city. We must go run and tell them. <laughs> or, or they come upon these, this, all these goods and this wearing like, hey, out of a love for God who loves us so richly, let's go and tell these. No. It wasn't out of love for God. It wasn't out of love for people. It was, I am morally, morally, I made up new words. I am morally obliged, and I don't want to get caught. I don't want to be punished having not said something. We look at that type of motivation, we kind of look down on that. Like, that's, that's not really good reason to share this news. Look at this in your notes on the screen. There's an African proverb that says, the greatest crime in the desert is to find water and keep silent about it. Pretty true, right? You stop and process that. But here's what I want you to hear today. The Bible actually presents a lot of different motivators for why we would do what honors God. Even in the realm of why we would share this good news, why we would be intentional ambassadors in our relational worlds, a lot of motivators, and guess what? Of all the motivators, things like, because I love God so much. Things like, because I love the people in my world so much. Things like, I want to someday be rewarded for living a life that's rewardable. There's also motivators like, there is a moral obligation to do something that's the right thing. And even, God, I don't want to risk punishment for keeping my mouth shut. All of those, not just in this text, all of those are motivators throughout scripture of why we do the right thing. Here's what I want you to hear clearly from me today. It's in your notes. Here's the significance of the leper's motivation. First, it motivated them to share the good news. They acted. They acted. If you want to look down your nose today, that's not a really good reason why to share this good news. I just want to simply say this. It at least moved them to action. That's valuable. All the people in the city were pretty glad they heard this news. But secondly, it's two of many types of motivations that the Bible gives us for why we would share this good news. There's many reasons, things that motivate us, catalysts in our lives that would get us to move towards the right things. Actually, moral obligation and fear of punishment are actually two among others. Probably I can identify seven of reasons why we'd be motivated to do the right thing. I don't look, my no, look down my nose at this motivation. I go, you know what? It brought about an amazing result. Praise God. Praise God. Rather than get in the weeds of looking at my motivations for doing things, rather than you getting in the weeds looking at your motivations and waiting until your motivations are pure, because guess what? You're going to be waiting a long time. Instead, let motivators like these move you to action. See, the goal I have today, what I'm after in this series, what I'm after specifically today, is to bring you face-to-face with the reality that we do have a responsibility we do have a responsibility to get to share this great news. But see, even in that terminology, it seems so oppressive. It seems so negative. Let me reverse it. We have the opportunity to share this great news that we have heard, that we have responded to, to people who so desperately still need to respond to it. And that's what it is. This is what I want, what I deeply want for you. I want you to experience the kind of joy that exudes, the kind of joy that you will know when you see someone in your relational world beginning to make steps toward a holy God. 
I want you to experience the kind of joy when someone you've been praying for, someone you've been investing in, someone that you have looked for organic conversations to have begins to begin to pay attention to their spiritual life, begins to think, maybe this is a Jesus I do need to know. I want you to get to experience that. Just this last week at our staff lunch, one of our staff team members shared about just the way that God was working in the life of someone in their relational world. And it was just it was just con- just palpable all around our room. There's about 50 of us that get together and, and everyone in that room could recognize this deep sense of joy of seeing someone at this stage in a walk with the Lord continue to make strides and grow to now they're here. And and this person would never claim this is all because of me but would say I got to partner with God and be involved in this person's life if she was making these changes. It exudes this great joy. There are many people at Trinity Church, and I want to be careful that I never present this other than what I really mean to. There are people at Trinity Church who've been living, rooted, and reaching lives for decades before we ever called it, before we gave it this name. And you know this joy. You know how exciting it is to pray for, to invest in, to look for opportunities when they are in the valleys to show up and say, I want to be the hands and feet of Christ in your life today. You have experienced this joy over joy. And my whole point is I just want more of us to be on board. I want more of us to be a part of that great, great news of being Jesus's ambassadors to our world. Think of it this way. You consistently are grateful for, you consistently thank God for the fact that the person, when Hilke today asked you to raise your hand about people who were directly responsible, directly involved, and you hearing the gospel, that person you thought of when you raised your hand, you are grateful every day. Every day that they didn't keep that to themselves. That's my whole point. Why wouldn't you want to be a person like that in someone else's life? That's what living a rooted and reaching life is all about. God, we get the joy, the intense joy of getting to be engaged with you, getting to be a partner. This word ambassador, we've taught about it before from 2 Corinthians 5. It's a powerful word because it means exactly when you think of a word ambassador today in the geopolitical spectrum, it's the same concept. Someone who's sent as a representative from one kingdom to represent those interests in another. But the thing we have to constantly be reminded of, ambassadors have no authority in the kingdom in which they're sent to. They have no power. All they have is influence. And all they have is the authority they've been sent with. They know in their mind, I've been sent to represent that king's intentions in this place. That's who you and I get to be. Jesus is ambassadors to our worlds. So I want you to hear this today. Some of us are gonna walk away today with this sense of guilt because what you're processing in real time, you're not just hearing an invitation, you're going backwards and you're realizing the years and decades you have not been doing this. Can I just tell you, that kind of guilt has no place. No place in where we're going. Because here's why. If there's ever, I've been told many a time and noticed it myself, if there's any time you wanna make Christians feel bad about themselves, feel guilty, just talk about what they tithe and how much they share their faith. Guess what? I'm not interested in guilt. It is not a good motivator. Because like you, I can feel bad for about an hour and then I just go back to my life. Guilt has no place in this room. 
no place in our mission. What I want to do instead is draw you towards this great opportunity for you and for me, this great opportunity to be involved in people's lives. And by the way, I really mean that when I mention myself. I currently am not sharing this great news in my relational world the way I want to, the way my world needs me to. This is huge for all of us. God, would we be a people on mission who take seriously your great opportunity to partner with you? That's what this is about. And that's what this narrative is about today. And I want to tell you this, if you're here today and you're starting to kind of feel something like, hey, I want to do this, I'm excited about this, I don't know how to do this though. I don't know how to have those organic conversations. I don't know how to pray effectively for the people in my world. I don't know how to invest. Guess what? Stay with us. Stay with us in this series, and I promise you will. Finally today, number four, people's response to Jesus is not your responsibility. We just said a minute ago that it is your responsibility to communicate, to share, to give this message of great news. But people's response to that, some of you will begin to take hold of this idea and you will get so excited. Todd, there are people in my world that need Jesus so badly, I am gonna begin to pray for them. I am gonna begin to reach out into their worlds and have conversations that make sense about things much more than the surface, shallow place I typically talk about. I am going to invest in them but they're not responding. They're not reaching out to you, Jesus, and now I'm, I'm burdened by that. I'm even hurt by that. I'm frustrated. This is something we have to keep clear from the very beginning. You don't ever save anyone. That's always God's business. You just get to be a part of the equation. Here's how it played out. 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 12. The king got up in the night and he said to his officers, they've heard this news, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. It's, it's a ploy. This is a, a, all a strategy. It's, it's a, they're messing with us. One of the officers answered, have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Not five, but the five. They're down to five. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all the Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them out to find out what happened. Let's send envoys. So they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king and then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. The people went out and experienced the good news that had been told to them. Here's what I want to be clear about today and be clear as we begin to march down this road together. God is always the author of salvation, but he wants to use you. He wants you to play a role in people's lives as they are putting their faith in Jesus. And like we said earlier today, there's nothing more exhilarating than that. When, about this time last year, when we were studying through the book of Ephesians, we got to chapter two. And as we got to chapter two, one of the things that kind of came off the page was this, is that the Bible says in Ephesians two, verses one through three, that all of us, every one of us in this room, everyone in in your relational world you interact with, all of us were born spiritually dead, spiritually dead on arrival, that we have no capacity to respond to God, watch, unless God begins to waken us up, unless the Holy Spirit begins to quicken us and help us kind of understand there's something I have not been paying attention to. There's something I desperately need. There's a God who's calling out to me. That's the spirit of God. 
And what we desperately need to do is be praying for the Holy Spirit to begin working in people's lives that people who are spiritually dead can become quickened, can become awake to spiritual stimuli, and then we get to watch God on the move. The people in your relational world, they need the Spirit of God to wake them up to this good news of Jesus. And that's your part in the mission. You as a person who was once in despair, you get to point them towards a Savior where salvation can be found. In your notes, you've been rescued to rescue. You've been rescued to rescue. That's the point. That's where we're going. My simple prayer for you today as we look at this passage is to say, God, what am I supposed to do? If I understand the plot from 30,000 feet, I understand that God's redeeming his creation back to himself. That means he wants to redeem me to himself. He wants to redeem the people in my world to himself. What role do I have within that? And it's that now what idea that we began with today. Once you have responded to God's salvation of rescue, that good news shouldn't end with you. Let's pray. So Father God, we, um, we just want to say thank you This is a very powerful, thought-provoking passage. It's horrific. But it also, at the same time, presents an incredible way of salvation. And that form of salvation filled tummies, filled stomachs for the day. But, God, at the end of the day, these same people were going to be in dire spiritual straits. The good news you have given us to be able to give to our worlds is lasting. It's eternal. It's forever. And so my prayer is this, my prayer is that we would begin to ask the question, God, if, if you've shown me, if I've even responded to the plot line, how is this now supposed to change the way I live in a world who hasn't responded to that? How do I begin to have a concern for the people in my relational world who have not yet responded to this good news, who do live in varying degrees of despair? Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that begin to see life from your vantage point. You may be here today, and as we talk about this good news, we talk about this salvation that can be known, we talk about making this salvation known to other people, you are very aware of the fact that as you're looking in the mirror today, you realize you can't give what you don't have. You're here today and you have not yet responded to this good news. And we have laid it out pretty clear today that apart from God, we are in a state of despair. Maybe not in a city that's besieged, but in a life that is indeed besieged by the decisions we've made and the decisions made on us. And the Bible says that you can actually respond to this great news, this news of salvation and rescue It doesn't require going to a class. It doesn't require jumping through religious hoops. It just simply requires an initial point of saying, God, I surrender and I need you. A is to admit, like we said earlier today, to admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. You've lived life on your terms, not God's, and there's now a problem in the relationship. B is believe. Believe that this Jesus we've talked about today, believe that he lived a sinless life. Believe that he died a sacrificial death. Believe that he was raised from the dead supernaturally on the third day. Believe that Jesus is the only savior available and see is choose. The life that Jesus led for us that we see in the gospels is an example that we're to walk in and we follow him all the way home to heaven. 
That is the gospel. That is now your next step in response. And my simple urging to you today is don't wait. Respond right here, right now. Father, we love you. Begin this good work in our hearts, in our lives. Let us take action even this week to be a people who want to be your ambassadors to a desperate world. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.